it's our joy and pleasure to be with you again. It's refreshing for us to come down because there is a preciousness in like-mindedness when it comes to accepting the Word of God, the Bible, as the Word of God. So it's a pleasure for us just to be able to fellowship apart from that. <coughs> as, uh, as indicated, we will be looking at, well, the term has been the feasts of Israel because they were given to Israel. They are the feasts of the Lord. They did not originate with Israel. They originated with God himself. And um, I'll just put up, we'll see how this thing goes. Should bring it up. Is it on? Ah, go back one. All right. In the Bible, it's called the Lord's appointed feasts. The whole chapter 23 of Leviticus begins and sets forth what is called the Lord's appointed feasts. And the title beneath is the application to the understanding we should have. They are the prophetic feasts of the Lord. They are prophetic in application, meaning they apply to things in the future. And we'll bring that out when we come using Paul's teaching to show us clearly that these feasts, when they were given, were prophetic. That is, they would be fulfilled in detail. Timing and detail will be accurately fulfilled in each of the seven feasts in Israel by the Lord Jesus. And here's the central message of them all. So we're stepping into a very rich area, biblically, for the hour in which we find ourselves. We're in amazing time prophetically, unfolding before our very eyes in the world in which we are and Jesus has said when you see these things begin to come to pass look up your redemption draws near so there's immense words of comfort while there are, are, are words of exhortation and encouragement to keep and hold fast to the faith which was once delivered to the saints so we are living in immense times in regard to that I thought tonight, <coughs> in introducing it, because we've got some islanders here, focus on feasts. What goes with feasts, generally inseparable from the word feast? If you're going to have a feast, what goes with feast? Food. How much? Lots. All right. To you Fijians, my kana. Karnavakalevu, <laughs> which means uh, on, um, on uh, Gemma's and, and uh, Cole's wall, bon appétit, <laughs> the French, eh? <laughs> what are, I was thinking about Australians, eh? The dog sat on the tucker box five miles from Gundagai, all right? What about your swagman, all right? <laughs> you got that jolly jumbuck in your, your swag, in your tucker box, all right? So we understand food is inseparable from feasts. So when we come to the word feasts, it is not isolated. If I asked you, are you a Christian? 
Tonight, here, most of you, I guess, would answer, yes, you're not a Muslim, you're not a Hindu, you're not a Buddhist, you're a Christian. So when it comes to the fact that you're a Christian, <coughs> what about feasts? If I'm not mistaken, we just had one big one where a lot of eating was done. True? We call it Christmas. Actually, it's Christ Mass. That's its meaning used in the world today. It's Christ Mass. And that ought to ring warning bells in your mind that if that is what that feast means, you've got it all wrong. We are not in Mass. We are not eating the body and blood of Christ transformed posed to that by the power of a priest who lifts up that wafer and then becomes the body of Christ and you bow down, you worship and you take it and you will live because you had that piece of wafer. No, we don't hold to that if we're believers in God's word. So when it comes to feasts, we need to understand what are we really talking about? I was asking, because you know, I know a little bit of Islam and Eid is one of the Feast of Islam. So I asked uh, when I was at Coles and Demis, do you know anything about Eid? E-I-D. So Margaret said, well, look it up on the internet. <laughs> you know, that's the source of all information, apart from the Bible. <laughs> all right? So we look it up and we understand it applies in two ways. One, it's when Muhammad had his revelations for the Quran. So that identifies an event in the past. Please hear me carefully. An event in the past that is celebrated today and it's celebrated by that religion because that took place as far as they are concerned with Muhammad. And the other one was when, think it through, <coughs> Abraham offered up Ishmael. Did you hear me clearly? I'm a, I'm a Muslim, alright? Abraham offered up Ishmael and Ram substituted, took his place. So we have a memory of that. Two Eids in Islam. If I am in Fiji, because a lot of Fijian Indians, we have Diwali. Diwali is the Feast of Lights. And Diwali has a memory of something that happened in the past amongst their gods. And so this feast is taken and sweets are given and they will offer you sweets and you would ask a question, has this been offered to your God? So you are governed by the scriptures in your actions when you come into contact with this kind of thing. So you have religions of the world that have their feasts of something that happened in the past. That's why they have their feast. If you're a Jew... They have feasts apart from the ones listed in the Bible here. One of them you will know very well, Purim, from the book of Esther. All right? The other one Jesus celebrated called the Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah or the Feast of Lights it's called. And that's a memory of event that happened in the past. When God gave these seven feasts, they are looking forward 
to what will take place when they're given. It has not yet happened. When he gave those feasts, the Passover had not taken place. We are totally different. The feasts the Lord gave to Israel are prophetic by nature. So we are stepping into an amazing area. True? I don't know whether you've thought it through, but I've put you in the place of world religions and shown you that what we have from Scripture is unique. When those feasts were given by God to the nation of Israel from the mind of the infinite God who created all things for his own glory, he told them what would happen and when it does happen, you will celebrate it by this. So they are prophetic. The whole seven are prophetic by nature. So I want to sow that into your mind to start with, meaning we are sitting here with an amazing privilege. We don't have a feast to look back on something that happened in the past. When those feasts were given, they were given before the events took place. And they would be fulfilled in detail because God says, these are my appointed feasts and you will keep them in their rules and regulations. He said that to Israel. didn't say it to the Gentiles, he said it to the nation of Israel. So, we are stepping into this whole section, which in your Bible is in the book of Leviticus. Now, just to put it in its background, chapter 23 of Leviticus is wholly given over to the seven feasts God gave to Israel. The whole chapter is devoted to that. We're going to study it in some detail as we go. But I want you to think, how is it you can take one chapter out of a book, like Leviticus, and teach on it? God has a unique method and he had it in creation. We would call it, when it comes to humans, unit. Unity in the midst of diversity, meaning we're all human, but each of us is different. Even identical twins are different. Now they found out they're they're different, even though they come from the you know the separating of the cell. They they are unique. Even identical twins are unique. So we come to the issue of unity in the midst of diversity. All humans are totally different from one another. You are unique. There is no one to replace you. You are here, and you have a purpose. God has made each of us as individuals distinct, gifted us as individuals, and we are so precious to God as individuals. That's why we do not hold to abortion. Because every, every personage is a unique creation from the hand of God. So we understand that that is so. So when you come to the scripture and you come to the seven feasts of Israel in the book of Leviticus, What's the book of Leviticus about? Because you've taken out of one book. And you come to the book of Leviticus and the title tells you about the book. Leviticus, Levi, set apart from, set apart to. It's the priesthood. It's the tabernacle. It's the offerings. It's the fellowship with God. It's partaking of the peace offering. It's eating and fellowshipping with God. It's understanding your access to God. This whole book of Leviticus... Apart from sin, set apart, we call it 
sanctified, made holy, all through. I am the Lord your God who makes you holy. So we come to, this is the book of Leviticus. But Leviticus occurs in five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They're called the Torah, the Pentateuch. Five books. Books of Moses. But it's set in them. That, those five books are set in the Old Testament. So you have the whole of the Old Testament. And those five books are set in there. But you've got the Old Testament and you've got the New Testament. And they all go together. You've got like an onion. You know an onion? You do. <laughs> you can peel layer after layer after layer off. It's all, all onion. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction and instruction in righteousness. When you step into the book of Leviticus, we do not divorce it from the message scripture was meant to have. It's profitable. And it covers four areas, doctrine, reproof, correction and instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be thoroughly furnished, made what he should be, prepared to every good work. That is the purpose God gave us the scriptures. So when we step into the whole issue of the feasts, we are stepping into God's purpose for our lives to make us fit vessels to his honour. That's why we're stepping into the feast. It's no light subject. It's contained in the scriptures. So I'm going to take you through tonight's introduction, all right? I don't know how far we'll get in the introduction, but we'll see how we go. I've done this... The foundation scripture is Leviticus 23. Now, first of all, it's found in the Old Testament. So take your Bible, you're in your Old Testament, which some, some churches and some that don't want to hold the Old Testament as the value of the new. I'm sorry, the new is dependent on the old. Paul taught that it's the law and the prophets, the scriptures, that reveal Christ. So that was his method. So we're going to use that method as we come to it. So you turn to Leviticus, we're going to read from verse 1. Not all the whole book through tonight, but Leviticus chapter 1. Uh, sorry, Leviticus chapter 23. <coughs> and we're just going to comment as we go through. You will notice this section begins, the first verse begins, the Lord said to Moses, forget about your chapter divisions when you come to Leviticus. The divisions in Leviticus are identifiable by the Lord said to Moses. Every time you come to that phrase, you are starting a new thought all the way through the book of Leviticus. It's systematic, it's exact, it's how God has set it out. So when we come to this, it starts, and so we're starting a section, the Lord said to Moses. So we start a section, this is what he says. Speak to the Israelites. Who? Who is Moses to speak to? Are you an Israelite? No, you're not. You're a Gentile. You say, but I'm the Israel of God. No, you're a Gentile. <laughs> you're a Gentile. I'm a Gentile. I was not circumcised the eighth day. I'm not under the old covenant. I am a Gentile. By the grace and mercy of God, I have been grafted in with other Gentile believers into the olive tree. And with the Jews, 
that are elect according to the remnant that God speaks about in Romans, I partake of the root and fatness of the olive tree, which is your Old Testament prophets. I partake of that. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to partake of the root and fatness of the olive tree. We will listen to the prophets under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit imparting truth which it's necessary for us Gentiles to understand because it is the root of our understanding Christ and who he is and what he came to do. So he says to them here, speak to the Israelites, say to them. Now notice the wording. He says, these are my appointed feasts. So God is speaking to Israel and he tells them, these are my. Whose feasts are they? They're God's. That tells you, like the gospel, it never originated from man. Paul said, I wasn't taught it, I didn't receive it, I got it by revelation. When it comes to the feasts, they are not feasts of Israel, which Israel thought out and applied because of an event. They are feasts that originated in the mind and purpose of God and he gave them to Israel before they would ever happen. So we are stepping into that which is being given by God to the nation of Israel. And then he repeats it. You notice, whenever something is repeated in your Bible, taken from Joseph, from Pharaoh's dreams, Joseph interpreted and said, when God repeats himself, the matter is sure. So when you come to the feast, make no mistake, the matter is sure. In your first verse here, this is what he says. Or second verse. Speak to the Israelites, say to them, these are my appointed feasts, the appointed feasts of the Lord. Now what do you mean by appointment? Well, when your teeth start dropping out and I've re- reached Ecclesiastes 12 where the grinders are getting few. Right, I haven't yet replaced them by others. So, what happens? You have an appointment. You are going to the dentist. He fixes the time. He's going to tell you what happens. Israel, these are your appointed feasts. Timing and detail is in every feast. Timing, exact and detail according to exactly what God said. So we have God in his unique perfection imparting to the nation of Israel what the future holds. You cannot leave these feasts without understanding God has a purpose between Israel and his son. He has a purpose between Israel and the church but he also has a purpose between Israel and his son. And it lies ahead, the final fulfillment of all these feasts. So let's have a look. (coughs) He says this, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies or holy convocations or holy days, literally holidays. (laughs) Holy day is holiday, in case you didn't know. All right, And why is that there? Because when you come to these seven feasts, you're going to face seven special Sabbaths. They're not ordinary Sabbaths. They are days that are called 
by Paul, <coughs> special Sabbaths. And in the book of John, when John is writing his gospel, the next day was a holy day, as the NIV has it, a holy day, a special Sabbath. So when you come to this, these are holy convocations which Israel is to remember. They are appointed feasts given to them. And the mind of God will have its fulfillment in actuality on earth because this Bible is the history of our world from beginning to end. And make no mistake, it is history in reality. The whole, you say, well, where's Australia? You know, God has a purpose in this world. We are amongst the nations. We're Gentiles. We have that kind of relationship. We are Gentiles. But God has a purpose from beginning to end and he's going to consummate the whole of history in the last two chapters of Revelation, 21 and 22. New heaven and new earth. Former heaven and former earth passed away, found no place for them. So we have got a history book and into that history book in one chapter God has given to the nation of Israel their future and his dealings with them. And those dealings with the nation of Israel must determine the Gentiles' understanding of why we are here now and what our future finally holds. They're not given just for Israel's information. They are given for us so that we may understand the ways and plans of God. I'm glad you chose the hymn that you did. Take the name of Jesus with you. Because in the first prophetic feast of Israel, the words taken from Romans 9.17 are Paul's words, and it's to Pharaoh. For this reason I raised you up, that my power may be known in all the world and that my name be, may be had in honour by the whole world. For this reason, he says, I raised you up. The whole purpose is honouring God for who he really is, not the idols of this world. So we come take the name of Jesus with you and you know very well, <coughs> he's been given a name, a name that is above every other name. There's no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. So we're passing into a very important revelation from God when we come to these feasts. <coughs> I put the Sabbath day. We're going to cover this in more detail. The Sabbath day <coughs> is not a feast. It's given in this chapter. It's mentioned first, but it is not a feast. The reason it's given is because there are seven special Sabbaths in the whole of the seven feasts. They're not one, one, one. They're actually three in the first, first <coughs> four and three, uh, four in the second. Yeah, second three. They're, they're mixed like that. They're, they're not just one, one, one with each feast, all right? The special Sabbaths are not one, one, one with each feast. They're scattered through. But the, the meaning of Sabbath is what? The word Sabbath. Rest. A rest means what? No work. It means exactly what it says. No work. How do you know that? 
How do you know that Sabbath means no work? You've got to go right back to Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. So God rested from all his works. Finished, complete and perfect. There is nothing more can be done. So God rested and it becomes God's rest, his Sabbath. So the message of Sabbath is rest, no work. And because there are seven special Sabbaths and it's emphasized every time it's stated, no work, they are very important, no work. <coughs> One other thing about it, Feasts always have food. One feast here, above all others, has no food to be eaten at all. The day of atonement you fast from the evening of the ninth day till the evening of the tenth day, no food. Well, have you got a feast? Come on, you islanders, no food. Have you got a feast? It's no, no, no feast, there's no food. If you can't see Jesus and he's the food we live by, it will have no value to you, this feast. It has no value to Israel till they recognise they crucified their Messiah. They will look on me whom they pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his firstborn son, every household apart, because God will pour out on them as a nation the spirit of grace and supplications, and they will weep, every household apart, weeping, broken. They have been, it has been revealed to them, supernaturally by God, that they actually crucified their Messiah in fulfilment of prophecy. And that will be a day indeed for the nation of Israel. The facts are back at Calvary. The application lies ahead for Israel. We will go through, I don't know how far we will get, but we will try and go through some of these feasts as we get time. <coughs> the first feast I put up there, <coughs> Passover. And you will notice in your Bible, this is a feast which you eat at. It is called the Lord's Passover. They're called the Lord's Appointed Feast. There's only two called by the Lord's name. The Lord's Passover and the Lord's Feast of Unleavened Bread. The others don't have that. Why? because you are sitting on a solid, unchangeable foundation. You will never change it. The Lord's Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are inseparable, so inseparable that when you're reading the book of Luke, Luke chapter 22, the verse begins, verse 1, says, The Lord's Passover called the Feast of Unleavened Bread puts the two together. They're inseparable. And by the way, there are two feasts which you eat at. Israel ate at. They had to eat unleavened bread. Talking to Colin Shammer, 
going to uh, Israel towards the end of <coughs> March. It's Pesach, Passover. You won't buy bread. You know the bread we get? Shunk, shunk, shunk. You know the air stuff? It will be unleavened. If you like Indian? Roti. No leaven. No yeast. No breakdown. No corruption. It's flat bread. For one week, we were told when we were there, you either get it now, you will get nothing for the next week. Why? It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They'll, they'll keep it. You'll just get biscuit. Pierced and striped. Interesting. Biscuit, unleavened bread, pierced and striped. That to us Christians has immense meaning. This is my body which is broken for you. Pierced and striped. So when you come to this, the first feast is called the Lord's Passover. The wording means what it says. Pass over. That's the first feast. What's the second one? You should have guessed by now. Unleavened bread. It's called the Lord's Feast of Unleavened Bread as we go through. So those two are there. In the middle of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there is another feast which Israel does not celebrate today. What's it called? The next feast, listed in Leviticus 23. What is it? First fruits. So the feast of first fruits is in the middle of the feast of unleavened bread and Israel amazingly does not celebrate this feast. We, because of Paul's letters, understand what is meant even if we could not read the Old Testament with understanding. Christ the first fruits, we are told, in speaking of resurrection. Christ the first fruits. Afterwards, those that are Christ at his coming. But the first fruits is Christ risen from the dead. He's alive forevermore. Corruption he will never taste again. Death cannot touch him. He is immortal, he is incorruptible. He is eternal in his humanity. He is flesh and bone. There is a man in the glory. There is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. The greatest miracle, the greatest mystery. The whole of scripture, there is only two. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was seen in the flesh. Because God is spirit. But he manifested himself in a flesh and blood body on earth. Great mystery. So we come to our understanding, that's the third one. Then we pass on a period of time and we come to a feast called Weeks. Seven times seven. And we call it, we generally know it, if you're Pentecostal, it's called Pente- Pentecost. Because it's seven times seven plus one. Because it's the first day of the week when the day of Pentecost had fully come, meaning counting the Sabbaths, it's seven times seven, but you add the first day of the week and you're in the day of Pentecost when the day of Pentecost had fully come, as the King James. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven, like the sound of a rushing mighty wind. Filled the house where they were. The flames, the tongues, and all that went on there as the Holy Spirit came upon those 120 disciples and the Holy Spirit was outpoured from heaven and from that point on the church has spread through the world 
true. So we understand there are four feasts. Then I have done this. All right. Break. And we happen to be in the break. All right. <coughs> then you come to trumpets. There is a feast of trumpets. Trumpets, generally you'll have the shofar sounded and all that kind of thing. But the key to the trumpets is they are mentioned in Numbers chapter 10. Silver. They are silver trumpets. The priests could blow those trumpets. The reason for blowing the trumpets is given to you in the chapter. To call the people together means gather you together. Gather together. Why? There is an enemy in the land. In case you didn't know what the land is, it's Israel. There is an enemy in the land. Call the people together. That lies ahead. It's going to happen. There will be an enemy in the land. Silver is the element of redemption. Its message is redemption. We understand that from the the silver in the tabernacle. It's called atonement money. The silver was given across, half a shekel. Whether you're rich, whether you're poor, doesn't matter what you were, you had to give half a shekel to be counted in the army of Israel. And you passed across, your name is recorded, and you are counted as in the army because you have passed across half a shekel. It's the price of your redemption. The rich must not give more and the poor must not give less. It does not matter who you are. We have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Not with silver and gold, which are corruptible, Peter says, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish, slain from the foundation of the world. So we understand that trumpets is an event which will bring to memory, you, you blow it, and it will remind God You say, God never forgets. You know what the Bible says? God remembered Noah. Did God forget Noah? No, he didn't. He's now going to act on Noah's behalf. And God is going to remember his people. There's an enemy in the land. Gather my people together. What are they doing? He will pour on them the spirit of grace and supplications, not law, grace. Not only the old covenant, they've come under grace. Spirit of grace and supplications. They look on, this is Zechariah 12, 13. They will look on me whom they pierced and they will mourn for him. Every householder party names the tribes, names the families, weeping bitterly. Talk about national repentance. A total brokenness. And by the way, only one third of the people are brought through the fire. I will purify them in the fire. And they will call on my name. Remember you to take the name of Jesus with you. For a Jew to name Jesus as Yahweh is a big step. A big step and it can be quite costly. So when it comes to this whole area here, (coughs) trumpets is followed 
ten days later by another feast called in the Bible the Day of Atonement. If you like it, under our understanding today, Yom Day Kippur covering the day the Arabs attacked the nation of Israel. The most holy day in the year for that nation. When work stops, it's a special Sabbath. No food is eaten. Nothing is done. There is a mourning. They do not understand what happened at the cross. They have no temple. They have no two goats. They cannot do the Day of Atonement but they mourn for their sin, thinking their names might be written into the book of life because of their repenting, what they do. But on that day of atonement, the revelation of what Christ did at that cross, pictured in those two goats, will hit Israel with a power they have never, ever experienced before nationally. And they will understand that his death He was the Son of God. It was plenary. The penalty was for their sin was paid. It was substitutionary. He took the place of the nation. And his death accomplished the putting away of sin because the goat is sent away and in your book of Leviticus 16 is devoted to the whole day of atonement. It says he bears all the wickedness of all Israel. They're laid on his head. And it carries them off. We understand a little when we come to Christ and realize he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. We have scripture after scripture indicating to us that he's dealt with our sin. But for Israel, they have no Messiah. They're still looking for one. But he's already come. He's already done that work. But they do not accept it. The pathway to that acceptance is not a good pathway. But it will take place because these feasts are prophetic. They will be applied to the nation of Israel in a time ahead. And the last feast is the feast most of us hear about now called the Feast of of tabernacles and in the uh, book of Leviticus it's very careful in its wording it says this is the there's the NIV NIV quote this is the closing assembly meaning for the year you have seven feasts every year you have these seven feasts this is the closing assembly one day the thousand year reign of Christ on earth will begin It's the closing assembly and we have prophecy after prophecy touching what it will mean to this world for Christ to come to his own people and to reign. A king will reign in righteousness and princes will decree justice. Lion will eat straw like the ox, etc. There's lots of scriptures that deal with what it will be like to have Christ reigning on earth. You see, he came as a king to his own people and they rejected him but he's going to come back to his own people and this time they're going to accept him they're going to accept him he wept over Jerusalem 
He said, how often would I have gathered you to myself as a hen gathers its chickens under its wings and you would not. Your house is left to you desolate and you will not see me again till you say, and quoting from Psalm 118, blessed is he, he comes in the name of the Lord. Tell me, is prophecy thrilling? To me it is, it's going to happen, all right? We're not looking at idle speculation. The world only knows that. We are looking at the Word of God and what God says is the history of our world and central to that history is His dealings with a nation called Israel. He's put them away for a period. We have watched the amazing gathering back take place into the land. We've watched suddenly a nation rise called Israel. We've watched the Hebrew language revived. We've watched amazing things take place travel in the land you see amazing things so we are living in amazing prophetic times you have no clock in this place eh? <laughs> so what I've done at the end there is put another thing because it's the closing assembly finish the whole is complete in those seven feasts God's history in his dealings with the nation of Israel are listed in seven feasts. Are they worth studying? I think so. We cannot leave them. And what I've put in is this, so we understand the nation of Israel. They were in Egypt, as, as uh, Brother Werner mentioned. And in Egypt, they irrigated from the Nile, right? You said about that pushing their foot and they pumped the water out and they put in drains like you do a bit out west and St. George and the Cotton, etc. And they have water running through the drain. That's how they irrigate. It says, the land I'm giving you is not like that. The, la- the Lord watches over it. There are fixed seasons. There's the early latter rain. There is an agricultural calendar. There is a religious calendar and those two are inseparable. Did you hear me clearly? There is a religious calendar and there is an agricultural calendar. So if you are in Israel now, your barley is just starting where we are now, February. Yeah. Your barley will soon dry off with the hot winds and it will turn from the green that is now to white. It's always the order, whether you're in York Peninsula, whether you're any, barley first, wheat next. It's an unchanging order. It's in your Bible. That's just facts of agriculture. But in this agriculture here, God says, (coughs) I will give you your rain in its season. That was his promise. If you you worship me, I will give you your rain in its season. Remember Samuel? No, you don't. You weren't there. I'll tell you about him. (laughs) Samuel, Samuel had a request from the nation of Israel, give us a king. All right? (coughs) And it displeased Samuel. He didn't, he said, God said to him, they haven't rejected you, Samuel, they have rejected me. So Samuel agreed to give them a king. But he said, so you may know that what you have done is a sin. He said, I will call on the Lord. It's harvest time. And God sent thunder, lightning and rain destroying the harvest. And the Bible says they feared the Lord and Samuel. We talk about, I was talking today, we talk about climate change. We are coming to 
control climate. There's climate change. While the earth remains seed time and harvest, summer and winter, cold and heat, day and night shall not cease. That is after the flood. That applies now. But there's coming a day when God will intervene and you will have climate control. And you'll read about that if you, if you read Revelation chapter 16. And it is the last time when the people of this world admit they curse him that had control of these plagues. And the last plague is thunder, lightning and hail, the like of which the world has never ever seen. Hail, the weight of a... Oh, we have ginger boxes, they're 10 kilos. This is about 40 kilo coming down one block of ice, hitting the earth. The lightning, you think you've heard lightning? When we were in Adelaide and York Peninsula, we came down to see our daughter and the family. She said that the, the cloud was heavy, it was thick. And when the thunder came, we thought we were sure. The, the bed shook, everything shook. There must have been an earthquake. It wasn't. The cloud held in the sound and everything shook. And they thought they had an earthquake in Adelaide. You yourselves have probably seen God's display of power when you see the you know what it's like where you get it violent and the sound you know you feel the earth shaking under your feet what you see in Revelation from Revelation chapter 4 on between before the first five, seven seals are broken you will have from the throne came thunder lightning and a great sound, voices. You go through the seven seals, you, before you step into the seven trumpets, you get thunder, lightning, and an earthquake. You go to the next, finish the seven trumpets, you, before you step into the seven bowls, you'll have thunder, lightning, earthquake, and a great hailstorm. What's happening? the intensity of the expression of the sovereign God in heaven who actually happens to control the weather of our world. Bomb doesn't. Bureau of Meteorology, all right? Because <laughs> I'm a farmer, we look up for the weather, all right? <clears throat> we don't predict the weather. We often make mistakes. We cannot predict accurately the weather. There is someone in control of the weather. He that sits in the heavens will laugh. The Lord will have them in derision. He will mock when their fear comes. So the wicked and the rebellious who will reject him totally, unrepentant, refusing, is the picture of Revelation finally. They will acknowledge he had control. Not science, not global warming, they have to admit finally that the God of heaven is in control of these plagues. We have not come to that. In fact, we have such a shaking of the fist in the face of God today, so demonstrable in our world, the fear of God no longer exists in so many people's lives. There's no fear of God before their eyes is the charge of Paul in Romans. So we come to this he is in charge of the seasons. And what I've done here is given a quick overview 
the whole of Scripture, and into that whole of Scripture you can start to see what the Bible actually covers. I could an overview of the whole of Scripture. <coughs> Genesis to Revelation, ten C's of biblical history. All right? The creation ministries has seven C's, all right? I've put ten C's up. <coughs> Genesis chapters 1 to 11. Every event starts with a C. Now start telling me the first event in the history of your Bible that started with C. Creation. All right? There is an event that follows creation <coughs> and it starts with a C and this is more hard, difficult, whatever you like. <laughs> It starts with C, but it is the what man did and what he came under. Condemnation. It's Adam. Through one man, sin entered the world. Condemnation came. So condemnation, and then we come to what the earth became in God's sight. Corrupt. Man became corrupt. Genesis 6 verse 4. 14. <coughs> So the earth became corrupt. So what did God do about it? Starts with C. You'll have to name the flood, and, but not with a C. You'll have to name it with a C, but it's the flood. <laughs> Catastrophe. Right? Oops, how did that happen? What did I do? All right. Catastrophe. The reason it's like that is because when you're doing Greek and you're in 2 Peter chapter 3, the word for the flood is kataklusmos. Kata down, klusmos to throw from which we get our word, a catastrophe. So we say, it's a catastrophe. You follow the catastrophe, which is the destruction of the world, and we have eight people in the ark saved out of the flood. So what's the next event on earth that starts with a C while you're sitting here and you all, some of us are different colours, some of us are different uh, eye colours, some of us are... Confusion! Babel, we were scattered in our genetic groups by families, we were scattered. It's the origin of the nations. Genesis 10 gives us the history of the origin of the nations, oldest document we have. So that's the foundation for the rest of Scripture. That is history before the flood and after with that. So then we come to Israel. What did I do then? I must have pressed the bottom. <laughs> and I put in them in, all right? With Israel... It starts with an event because the whole world had become idol worshipping. All the nations. Abraham was an idol worshipper. We're told that in Joshua 24. He was an idol worshipper when God called him. So the whole world was idol worshipping. What is it that demonstrates God is not an idol to be worshipped? There must be a power that he can demonstrate and he's going to have to demonstrate it to the world. What did God do to show he's not an idol? He is to be worshipped as the living creator of all things. What did he do? Which man did he call? Abraham. Who was his wife? Ah. When you're going through, you get to Genesis chapter 11, you will read. <coughs> Before that, this man had, son, had a son and he had other sons and daughters. He had a son, he had other sons and daughters. All the way through. Till you get to Genesis 11 and you'll find, but Sarai was barren. 
Idols can't give life. Can they? Who is the author of life? You know John 1? 1? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, etc. In Him was life. In Him is life. He's the giver of life. You know what Daniel said to Belshazzar? When the finger, remember the finger wrote on the wall? And his knees knocked together? Yours, ours would too if suddenly a hand appeared and writing was left on the wall as a finger where hand went across and there's writing left. And you know what the writing is and the, the, this is terrible. And his feet and knees knocked together. He was in shock. And his grandmother, his um, grandmother said to him, mother or grandmother said to him, there is a man in your kingdom. Your father knew him. He has the spirit of God, the living God in him. So he sent for Daniel. And Daniel came in. Daniel did not spare that man. He told him, he said, literally, you know what happened to your father. You know it. Meaning, his father got proud. He was lifted up in his pride. And what happened? Seven years he went out of his mind. He ate straw on the ground like an ox. His hair grew like eagle's feathers. His nails grew like bird's claws. For seven years he went out of his mind till he acknowledged the most high ruled amongst the kingdoms of men. He puts down one, he sets up another. He said, you knew this and you have done this you have worshipped the gods of gold and silver and you mocked the one in whose hands is the very breath of your life. And that night he died. So when we pass into scripture and we pass into these events in the Old Testament, don't tell me events ahead are not going to be characterised by God revealing himself in the same powerful manner in the nation of Israel. He's going to. So it will no longer be said, and I'm glad again, the chorus, the, the song that you have there, says, it will no longer be said, as surely as the Lord lives, means he's not like these gods, he lives forever. As surely as the Lord lives, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, as surely as he lives, it will no longer be said that. It will be said, the Lord who brought you out of the north country and out of every nation where he scattered you. So the events that accompanied Israel coming out of the land of Egypt are going to be manifest to the world in a greater manner so that they will say, no, don't swear as surely as the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. It is the Lord who's brought us up out of the land of the north and out of every country where we have been scattered. So there lies ahead an immense gathering and work of God for the nation of Israel. And you can read it for yourself because it's prophesied in the book of Revelation. Because it's the concern of Israel from Revelation 4 to chapter 19 in the book of Revelation. You are dealing primarily with what God will do with the nation of Israel and at the same time with the Gentile world. It will come under judgment. So we have got 
the Israel nation. <coughs> then you come to your New Testament. What's your first four books called? Gospels. They are Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. What's their message? Your four Gospels. You, you pass with a big gap through Malachi to the end before John the Baptist rises. So what's the, what would you summarise the message of the four Gospels? Christ and the cross. That summarises the whole message. You leave that, you will come to the church. And for 2,000 years it has been our responsibility. We have had a commission given to us. From Acts to Revelation, you will have the church and please note, you will also have the nation of Israel. The consummation is the final lot. That's the book of Revelation. Deals with the church and with the nation of Israel. The church you are going to find in Revelation 1, 2 and 3. But you're going to find a manifest appearing of John in heaven. And when he gets into heaven, what does he see? A throne. He sees one seated on the throne like a jasper and sardine, sardius stone. Now that doesn't mean he's a stone. That means you look in your Old Testament for understanding. And Benjamin is here. The last name one of Israel's tribe was Benjamin. The first name one of Israel's tribe was what? The first named one, Reuben. So you have Reuben because you're dealing with the jasper and the sardine stone on the temple, on the, the breastplate of judgment of the high priest. The first stone is pictures Reuben. The last stone pictures Benjamin. Reuben means behold a son. Reuben, behold a son. The last one, Benjamin, the son of my right hand. So you get to heaven. You have a covenant-making God because it is a rainbow-circled throne. He calls it a rainbow. God says, I, in the Old Testament, he said, my, I, when I bring a cloud across the earth, I will set my bow in the cloud. When you get to Revelation, it is a rainbow-circled throne. Meaning, go back. I'm a covenant-making God and I'm a covenant-keeping God. And I'm dealing with the nation of Israel. And how will he deal with it? Behold a son, the son of my right hand. That's how he'll bring that nation back to himself, to worship him in truth. And so you'll step from that right through to Revelation chapter 19 when he'll finally come and stand upon the earth at the Mount of Olives. So we are going through Old Testament, New Testament. We have seven feasts and those seven feasts are particularly applied to Christ and his dealings with the nation of Israel. But those seven feasts carry a message for the church. And I don't think we will get past the first feast the reason I've spent time here is this, because I have noted repeatedly in churches where I may go and sit in and that, where the Lord's Supper is celebrated, one text is used mostly continuously, 1 Corinthians 11. 
True? But if you take the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5 deals with it. 1 Corinthians 10 deals with it. You have three instances with immense messages dealing with this thing we are celebrating and giving foundational understanding to it and we don't touch them. Why? I think we have not spent enough time on thinking through the importance of what the Passover meant to Israel because that's only a shadow. What it means to the church is its reality. And if I do not understand the shadow, I will not be able to apply the reality. So I'm going to take you through in the time I've got with you in some of those areas. Thank you. My wife has told me to zip it. <laughs> I have no clock. <laughs> Thank you very much. What I've tried to do is just lay a foundation tonight to stir you up and make you hungry to go to those scriptures and realize we are dealing with a very important subject. God bless you. Let's pray before we finish. <coughs> Father, we thank you tonight for the privilege we have beyond measure of stepping into the living word of God revealed in this written word. You have shown us how much you have detailed your work and all that will be required of you to do to bring the nation of Israel to yourself as a nation. That applied to us because we have been in slavery, we have been in darkness, we have served sin, there was no way out until we heard about what happened at the cross. We understood the work that you did we heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one you gave unchangeably to the church to communicate to the world as God's saving power in his own Son. We pray, Lord, you'll stir our hearts with the revelation of the richness of the truth that lies in Christ alone because in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and we are complete in him. We ask for your blessing on us tonight. We commit ourselves to you, the word of your grace in our hearts operating, and we give you thanks for this time together. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.